Hello, friends. Hello, 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 friends. A tradition unlike any other. Oh, 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 my goodness. In your life have you seen anything like that? There it is. Adam Scott, a life changer. Mashed potato. Here it, here it, here it, here it comes. This is the 19th Tea Podcast. Kieran Marsh, Nathan Drudy, back with you for another episode. Drudy's pleased to say we have a uh, another return guest tonight. We thoroughly enjoyed our, our first chat with with this guest. He brought, uh, I suppose, a unique perspective uh, at that point in our journey as a podcast. We hadn't done a lot of uh, chat around architecture, but it is something that interests both of us. Um, you're probably a little bit more in that niche than I am, but I certainly had my eyes opened by uh, by our guest that night, and, and hopefully we we do so again this evening. He is uh, he is the C in OCM golf. I speak, of course, of Mike Cocking. Mike, welcome back to the uh, the nineteenth tee. Thanks, guys. Nice nice to be here. It's been oh, I think a busy period for you, Mike, in between our our last conversation, which is odd given. We've gone through that, um, you know, that absolute dumpster fire that was 2020 in general, but it doesn't seem to have slowed down from a, in fact, it may well have been the perfect environment to, to build courses. What, what I suppose in general has been the, 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 the busy period for you since last we spoke? Uh, well, it's, yeah, it was certainly not smooth sailing, um, but we, it was an amazing end to the year for sure. I mean, we were in, I was in America up until mid March. So we finished um, the project at Shady Oaks in Texas. So I was kind of doing two weeks out of every four in in the States from, I guess, about June 2019 through to March 2020. So we were lucky in a way because it was kind of the, the last scheduled visit when we got the call to, you know, everyone overseas sort of got the email to say, you know, you want to you want to get home or otherwise you may not get home kind of thing. So um, I was fortunate in, in that regard. And then, you know, the, it's amazing what, what has been interesting is it's amazing what you can, what you can do online, you know, with now with FaceTime and drone footage and photos and, you know, emails and all those things, you, you can actually get quite a lot done. Um, so we were able to, I mean, everything was built at Shady Oaks, but there was a lot of sort of fine details and fine tuning. And it was just a case of, you know, I was going back and forth with the super who we worked really closely with, you know, four or five times a week with half a dozen photos or a dozen photos. And I'd mark them up in Photoshop and send them back. And then we'd chat on the phone and go back and forth. And, um, yeah, it is amazing just how you can operate when you have to. Um, but then it's, so then, yeah, it was back in March and then look, we were still building at Sandringham and it's as strange as it may seem, we fell under the, there wasn't really a separate category for civil works. So we fell under the, um, the building construction side of things. And because a golf course is less than three stories high, as, you know, as ridiculous as that seems, um, that, that was the category that we fell under. So and we were able to keep building because we, we only had one shaper there and me. Um, and then the project at Lonsdale was outside the, the ring of steel around Melbourne. So, you know, for a little niche company, we, we actually, and you would think we would be really exposed with COVID, we, we were actually able to kind of plot along really. Um, 
yeah, and then then towards the end of the year, we had you know we we had a a couple of projects um, go our way, which was terrific. And then a lot of those projects we'd been working on all opened. So it was a very interesting year, um, but certainly finished with a bit of a flurry. You mentioned a few projects we are going to get into specifically there in terms of finishing off Sandringham as well as Lonsdale and, and obviously some really exciting announcements more recently around Medina. But probably just more generally, you, you touched on an interesting point about what's possible when you need to. And I think we've seen it the world over, Mike, um, in, in all industries that were forced to lean into a, a completely unprecedented situation i'm curious from your perspective what you think will be the residue that's left over from an architecture point of view like you had to adapt last year and as we start to build back to some normality there'll be a tendency to switch back to the way things always were but are there some practices that you think may remain that otherwise wouldn't have been uncovered had it not been for the unique circumstances presented last year um it's a good question i mean look we're probably i think in a lot of industries it certainly has and it will uh, change how they work. I guess we're a bit different because we put so much value in the time we spend on site, you know, because we are, it's sort of how we work, you know, we spend a lot of time out in the field, walking the course, um, and then when it comes time to construction, you know, working closely with with guys. I mean, I, I guess if we, were a, if we were a company that did CAD plans and sort of sent them to a construction company, then yeah, maybe it would change how you work, but it's still nothing can really take the place of actually being there. Um, so I think when it comes to building, it, it's, you know, we, we would like to see a return to the, you know, the old days, um, so to speak. But, I mean, one thing that has been good, I think as much as I'm sick of uh, Zoom and, <laughs> and Teams and all the rest of it, um, it has been good to free up your time uh, you know, often, and you guys would find it too, you know, people call meetings for the sake of calling meetings. And, you know, sometimes you'd have to drive an hour and a half for a 20-minute catch-up. And I think that's what Zoom's been really good. That's kind of proven that actually we don't have to do that. Let's just, can't we just have a call? We'll get it done in 20 minutes and we can both go on and, you know, do what we should be doing. So, but, but that's a small part of our business. So, you know, probably hasn't had a massive effect. Now, Mike, um, I don't think there's been an episode yet where in our Google Doc where we sometimes rarely add notes, um, we've had more left over from an episode than we did the first time that we spoke to you. So we have a plethora of random topics that we're going to throw at, <laughs> throw at you um, before we touch on some of your, your, your works that you've got coming up. Of course, Medina, which is going to be one that's um, going to be absolutely fascinating. But one that I did want to touch on was obviously the the recent um, uh, notes that came out from the RNA and the PGA Tour around uh, the uh, I suppose the dial back in many ways of, of technology and some of the rule changes that they were looking at around technology, and then some of the comments that came out of uh, PGA Tour players, uh, most notably Webb Simpson, who said that we need to be um, re looking at our golf courses, which is. I think the complete wrong argument from um, from someone who who watches a bit of golf. What's your take on on I suppose firstly Webb's comments, but also the rule changes and how that's going to impact golf and particularly golf architecture? Uh, look, I think you know I don't want to weigh too heavily into it, um, but I guess I don't understand why guys get so emotional about. The, the discussion, you know, this idea that we're ta- that if there was a rollback, that 
the, the advantage that long hitters have that they won't have anymore. I, I, I can't actually make sense of that argument. You know, I mean, if, if we take 10% off the golf ball, well, guys that hit at 350 will hit at 320. Mm. They're still hitting at 30 yards longer than anyone else. And it means they've got a seven iron into the green instead of a three iron. Like they've still got the same advantage that they had before. Yeah. And I, so I, do, I do not for the life of me understand how they'll argue at black and blue. Mm. Um, and from our point of view, it's just what, what's missing or what's been lost is the, is the, um, the shots into the green. You know, I mean, that, that's where it's disappointing is that you just don't see many lines into par fours anymore. And, and you know, it's, in fact, it's, you know, it's wedges and short irons and par fives have become mid irons or even short irons in some instances. Mm. So that's the pit. That's what you would like to see. You'd just like to see um, more of a premium place on, you know, long irons and mid irons than what we see at the moment. So, you know, there's a limit to what you can do, you know, with architecture to Webb's point. I mean, if you want to see guys with a line in their hand on a par three, well, suddenly it's 260 or 270 yards. Um, it's and, fascinating. And it's a fascinating um, conversation to have. I mean, uh, with the lockdown on last week and um, here in Perth, I, I managed to, we're obviously working from home and, and having the TV on in the background. I was trawling through the archives of the Masters YouTube page, which has every final round um, since I think it's yes, 62 it or 63, yeah, which is awesome. fascinating. And I, um, I, I sort of started at 86, which is um, probably one of the all-time great Masters with, with Jack um, and his resurgence. But the thing that struck me was the change to the architecture over the years. And obviously, Tom Fazio has done a lot of work. Um, I think he's just about touched every single one of the holes there. But obviously, the Eisenhower tree on 17 being um, you know, removed sort of out of control. But I, I suppose even the great courses in the world have to undergo changes to, to keep up with the times. But when you look back at something like an 86 Masters, you've got Jack having a, a four iron or a five iron into a into a green that's very very quick and it plays much more of a, a premium on shot making and and decision making and having those angles exactly correct uh, to have a, the best shot into the green which I mean it still exists at Augusta but it seems like there's less of a premium on on ball placement these days. Well, it's, yeah, I mean it's it is hard to it's hard to reward or penalise when guys have got, you know, a nine iron or a wedge into a green, because, you know, even if they're out of position, unless the greens are like concrete, you know, they're good enough to get it close. Even from the primary rough, they're good enough to get it close. Mm. Um, so, yeah, so there's only so much you can do with angles. And particularly so if, if you've got no control over the firmness, I mean, because the firmness is the key. I mean, that's really why the sand belt courses remain relevant, even though they're pretty short by global standards. You know, I mean, <clears throat> there's courses now that are almost tipping 8,000 yards. Mm. Well, you know, I mean, the longest sandbelt courses are, are barely, you know, just a tick over 7,000 yards. But they, you know, they don't, they don't destroy them in tournaments, even when we get, you know, the, 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 the overseas players and the world top 10 playing because it's mainly due, due to just how firm they are, how firm the approaches are and how firm the greens are. And then... Because it's it's that firmness and the and the tilt of the green that really puts that premium on um, position back in the fairway. Yep. Not not just the position of the bunkers. Um, your point just to go back. Augusta's you know I find Augusta fascinating and 
you know, I love Augusta and I love the Masters, even though, you know, you can find fault with certain aspects, it's still an amazing place. Um, and I've got a book that it, it's the, it's like the media guide. A, a friend of mine who's a writer, they get it every year. And it's got all the stats of every, every tournament back, you know, going all the way back. Mm. And it's interesting that the course length didn't change from the 30s through to 96. I think it was 96 the first year they tried to target proof it. No, 97, 98. Um, yeah, the course didn't change, didn't move at all. So in 60 years, in fact, there was a few years there where it got shorter. So mm. it was just always the same length. And it's because there was no advances in technology. You know, I mean, essentially the clubs didn't really change from once they got out of hickories to steel shafts, there pretty much wasn't a change until the 90s. Um, so much so that there's a great book on the 1975 Masters, which when Nicholas beat Weisskopf and um, Johnny Miller, and the, his driver and his five-wood or his driver and his three-wood were a combined 70 years old. Mm. <laughs> like driver was from the 40s and his three-wood or five-wood, I can't remember which, was like from the, I don't know, the th I want to say the 30s, the late 30s. Because, you know, guys, you would find, you know, that was part of the fun was like finding this, you know, beautifully shaped three-wood or driver and, you know, didn't matter that it was 15 years old or 20 years old because it really made no difference to how far it flew. Whereas now, you know, clubs are disposable almost after six months, you know, yeah. there's, a, there's a new one that's come out. So, yeah, and, and you look back, you, you know, you're right, you look back at the shots they were hitting into greens. I mean, you know, when in 80 six when Norman had a chance to tie I think it was a four iron he hit on the last and mm. you know I mean that that course would have been playing the same length as when Tiger went in 97 and he, he had a three-quarter lob wedge into that yeah. last. So it's it's just distorted the you know it's just really distorted the game and the courses with the, the shots they're hitting but yeah that, that's I mean I just would like to see it paired back so you start to see those sorts of shots again yeah and, it, was, it was it was fascinating to watch and, and listen to some of the commentary and you know they're talking about just a nudge over 300 yards as, as we start to get into sort of the, the, the late 90s, early 2000s with with Tiger and, and Olafarbo and, and VJ winning. It was a yeah. touch over 300 yards and it was what a monster drive. And now it's if you're hitting over, just over 300 yards, you're probably not even in the top 100 of, of driving distance. Um, so the game certainly changed. The one that I did want to um, just finish on Augusta with was uh, how much did you watch the Masters in November? I imagine it was it was no different for you, but did did the course surprise you in any way aside from the obvious that it was clearly softer? Because uh, you know, for me and and Marsh, we probably watched it, and not having been on the ground there, you were able to see the the landscape a lot more. I, I, I've never really understood or, or never really appreciated the the contours and how hilly the course is holes mm. like two and 10, like you, you can see that they're downhill, but when there's no fans there, you could, it was really accentuated. How did you assess sitting in Australia and, and watching, uh, and watching Augusta play in November? Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love watching Augusta, you know, the masters every year, you know, it's just such a cool, uh, <laughs> such a great sporting event to watch. Um, it was interesting. I mean, I was kind of looking at, it was interesting just how the how the grass was. Like, there's a few views behind twelve because uh, they'd obviously oversown everything, um, you know, because it was um, getting into autumn, and the, the Bermuda that's in the fairways would have been going dormant. So the 
so they overseed it with with ryegrass and you could sort of see that it was a bit of a patchy overseed like some you know you could sort of it wasn't a, wasn't as beautiful a cover as as um the other time in the year you know when it's when it's springtime um yeah it was it's a good point i mean not having the um the patrons um lining each fairway you could see a bit more um it's probably what was missing though was all of the the roars i mean that's the that's the amazing thing like i've been lucky enough to have gone a couple of times and um it is amazing like how the sound carries around that property and it's, a lot of it's because of the the trees and the hills and it's sort of the noises funnel around you know someone will have an eagle you know 300 meters away and it just you know the the noise it just um that reverberates sort of around the property and it's like it's it's deafening particularly if it's like a tiger roar you know if tiger's done something crazy then it's just and and that must have an effect on you as a golfer you know if you're standing over a shot that matters and suddenly there's a roar you know on the next hole or so, so i think that and hearing some of the players interviewed they i think they missed that aspect um you know it did, didn't feel quite like the masters because of that Mike, I want to turn to a few projects uh, that have probably been one of three things either completed, um, begun or announced as next on the list in, in the last time since we spoke. I want to start with Sandringham um, yeah. because it was kind of – you were in flux the last time we spoke and, and you kind of mentioned there before that you um, were the beneficiary of some unique uh, COVID restrictions uh, regulations down there in Victoria which, you, which allowed you to – to finish, it may well be the the best public course in the country. Uh, when when you consider what it has as a neighbour, what's taken the inspiration, where it was when it first opened up in the nineteen fifties, to where you've reimagined it to be now, I, I want to probably understand first and foremost what the vision was for Sandy, and and through the journey of construction, uh, what you see now as the finished product, has it lived up to your expectations of what you had envisaged for it? Um, well, I guess from the outset, we just wanted a publicly accessible sandbelt sort of experience. That was kind of the, the idea. Um, it was a not a, it was probably, I don't know, 5,800 metres long, I think, the old course. So it wasn't really long, um, but Part of the development, it's sort of, there's a, um, it's going to be the home of golf. So it's, it's kind of Golf Australia have their offices there. The PGA have their offices there. There's kind of an academy um, for the elite uh, golfers. So they, they've sort of got access to a, a driving range and facilities. So it was sort of this shared facility. So um, how, the effect that had on the golf course was we, would lo- we lost a little bit of land to um, a driving range. So it meant that the golf course was going to be shorter if they wanted 18 holes, which, which they did. But it, in a way, I, I don't think that was a, a huge issue because it became this sort of like executive golf course, if you like, with there was basically just lots of short par fours and par threes. And in many ways, that's kind of a great golf course for public play because they're still, the holes are still interesting enough for good players but they're not super long for, for guys that are just guys and girls that are just sort of learning the game. And the Sandbelt's kind of known for its par threes and its short par fours. So in a way, it kind of plays into the whole Sandbelt experience, the fact that it's made up of those sorts of holes. Um, 
and then the, the, I guess the flow on. So, we, you know, we wanted to build green complexes and bunkers that were, you know, sandbelt like um, the sort of bunkers that we've built, you know, lots of times in the past at Victoria or Kingston Heath or Peninsula or wherever. Um, the difference here was that early on, um, we chatted with Richard Forsyth, who's the superintendent at Royal Melbourne, and talked about whether or not we could grasp the greens and the surrounds the same way um, that Royal Melbourne is set up. So that they've got a unique blend of grasses on the greens called Sutton's, Sutton's Blend, which is a, um, it's a blend of grasses, brown top bent grasses and things that, um, that, that go all the way back to when the course was originally built. And it's such so unique within the sandbelt for these types of grasses. And then surrounding the greens, they've got fescue, which um, not too many of the other sandbelt courses have either. And, and he was he was on board with it. So it just meant that, you know, here was a golf course where, you know, for 50 bucks, you could get a taste of what it's like playing next door, I guess. Um, and it's, you know, the way we built the greens is basically how the greens are built at Royal Melbourne. They're, they're all push-up greens. Um, and I know he has found that they're very easy to get really, really firm. So there's no issue with getting the greens, you know, rock hard like next door too. So I guess that was the idea behind it. I mean, there's challenges, you know, on the site. There's a few pockets that were a bit heavy or there wasn't so much sand. Um, but that didn't mean we couldn't build a, you know, a sandbelt-like set of, of green complexes and, um, and bunkering and, Kind of set the holes up with that, you know, the width that you see on the sandbelt courses and and greens where you have to make a decision off the tee. So, yeah, it's it's, it's turned out very well. Um, I think it'll just get better and better with each season. Um, you know, it's a good group of guys looking after the course, and it's it's actually Royal Melbourne that are looking after the course. So they've got a, a different crew that look after Sand, Sandringham, but it's very much underneath the, the banner of Royal Melbourne. Um, and the building is kind of on the home stretch, it's, uh, I think, July, July or August. So that the whole site won't really be finished until then. But for the time being, the course is open. And I know they set records in December and January. They had the most players they've ever had. Um, I think they had 7,500 in December and the same in January, So which, which is a lot, um, a lot for them. I mean, if, if that went throughout the year, you're talking sort of 80 or 85,000 rounds. So um, it's proving to be popular, which is great. Um, and the demographics changed a bit too, which is interesting. So, you know, in the past, it was probably golfers that were closer to the end of their golfing days than the start, to, to be tactful. Um, and, you know, who found who maybe were at a sandbelt club, but it just found it too difficult, you know. I mean, there's a lot of carries, forced carries on sandbelt courses where you have to hit over the, you know, heath in the tee or, you know, a lot of bunkers and some of the bunkers are deep. And so they kind of, it was a popular place for them. You didn't see that many young guys. And the pro, uh, or the manager, sorry, the other day, I was chatting to him and he said, well, we're getting guys, you know, with alignment sticks and um, range finders and, you know, tightless carry bags, you know, that we're seeing them now. And he said, we never saw them, you know. So there's a lot of people in their 20s and 30s playing the course. So it's, and they haven't lost the, the older people either. It's just that they've got, you know, this new demographic have joined in. So um, it's really interesting and, you know, good success story. So hopefully, hopefully it just continues on. It's fantastic to hear that that's uh, the, the trend that is, is happening because I, I dare say a lot of private clubs around Australia would be very jealous 
of that. Um, and, and that's fantastic to hear that, that things are going like that. Um, and the course looks brilliant as well. What I've seen of it from Instagram, and I can't wait to get over there and play it. But one thing that I did want to mention was the competition that's running at the moment. Now, I don't know how much of uh, an influence you had on this, but um, the competition to name the holes, I think is, is excellent uh, on Instagram. I've seen that. Surely the clubhouse, um, you know, could be named after uh, a podcast that might lend itself to, you know, um, a, a name <laughs> that people uh, talk about the 19th hole, the 19th tee, something in, in that sort of vicinity, Mike. I, th- I think there's probably a few more people in front of you in the queue. <laughs> <laughs> I reckon there might be, but the competition's pretty cool. It is. Yeah, I've, I, I, we had nothing to do with it, but um, I have seen it online and, um, yeah, it's, I think it's proven to be popular, so it's, it's certainly generating some interest. They've done some really good um, good things on social media, which they, they, you know, was basically non-existent before. So it seems to, I mean, how much that's had to do with its popularity I, would be hard to you know, hard to work out, but it's certainly really raised its profile, which is great. Mike, I want to take you across Port Phillip Bay, uh, down to the, down to the Southern coast and and another project that really has grown legs since last we spoke. And that's, that's Point Lonsdale. And and this for me um, may well be one of your most special creations uh, purely because it's entirely unique to something we see in Australia. Obviously, uh, you know, you you do a bit of research on the ACM website, and it speaks directly to the um, the heavy influence of of the National Links and CB McDonald, and of course that the template holes made famous by by Rayner and Banks. Did it strike you as quite remarkable that that templates weren't not just uncommon, really unseen here in Australia before we we see something like the Lonsdale project? Uh, yeah, well, I mean, Ashley, um, me, my design partner, and I have, we've travelled to the States quite a lot over the years. And yeah, we, I mean, there's no such thing as, well, there's not really any template holes or that idea in Australia. And so we were kind of fascinated by it the first time we went over to the States. Um, we were lucky enough to, um, to go to the National Golf Links. Um, I'd played Chicago Golf Club and... I guess the more we were exposed to it, the more we would try and seek them out and, and research a bit about it. Um, and, yes, yeah, so, so we're always interested in it. And then, so Ashley has been the, the lead designer down there. And when early on in the project, um, you know, the club, I think, were interested in doing something a bit different. Um, they weren't sure what that was, but they liked the idea of having a point of difference over their competitor clubs nearby. And we kind of, as the trees were cleared off the site, so that, that project was basically, it was, a, it was a big rectangle, the property, and the club sold off, what funded the development was the, they sold off sort of the front quarter of the land. And then some of the money was used to purchase a neighbouring farmland. And then we kind of reworked an 18-hole golf course across both bits of, bits of the, the, the property, if that makes sense. And there was a lot of um, there was a lot of uh, non-indigenous trees that had been planted. It was it was quite thickly planted, and we managed to get approval to remove them all. So we stripped it back to just the moon and tea tree. So it's all a much lower sort of um, lower uh, tree canopy and a lot of open areas too. So you get views across the water, um, views across the lake. Sorry, and you really get a sense of the 
greater sense of the character of the landscape, you know, big undulating sort of sand dunes. And it reminded us a little bit of Long Island in, in New York, which is where uh, National Golf Links is. Um, so as a quick segue, it might be interesting. So McDonald was kind of regarded as the grandfather of design in, in America. So he was involved with the first 18 hole golf course um, in America. He learned, he actually studied at St. Andrews University and learned the game from old Tom Morris and young Tom Morris. So two good, not too bad teachers. Decent. Yep. <laughs> and then he went back to America and because he was a golfer and there was a few people kind of interested, I think they were all expats from the UK, but kind of interested in golf. And so they looked to him to, well, surely, you know, you could build us a golf course. And how he did it was, of course, and as you would do it in anything, I mean, any time, you know, if you're learning the game of golf, you would look at videos of Tiger Woodswing. Or if you're learning how to paint, you would look at, you know, paintings of Rembrandt or, you know, you always look to the best. Mm. And that's essentially what he did. You know, he went, he looked back at his days in or his years in the UK and thought back to his favourite holes or the holes that he thought were the best holes and kind of reimagined them on the property. Um, so at, at National Golf Links, which, which wasn't his first course, but there was, you know, there was a number of different templates. At Chicago, there were a number of templates. And it kind of became his thing where, you know, him and then Seth Rayner, who worked with him and later uh, Banks, on all their courses, there was typically, you know, three or four or five of these templates. Um, and they would always adapt them to the site, which was a challenge. You know, it wasn't, they weren't just stamping out the exact same hole. And then they also went on and, and built some unique holes that became templates too. So that's kind of the, the history of the templates. So things like the road hole or the redan or the beeritz, which is the green with a sort of saddle in the middle of it. Um, there's, you know, there's probably 12 or 14 that you could, you could go through and list. So we sort of, yeah, I mean, that idea started, it was pretty close to construction, actually, when we started seriously thinking about that. Um, and we may have even started construction before um, chatting with the club about it. But they, so we talked in sort of loose terms and broad concepts, and they liked the idea. And then we sort of took it a step further. And, and um, one thing you may have noticed on some, you know, some recent, tournaments like at, um, where was it, um, oh, Wingfoot, where they sort of reinstated some of the square edges of the greens. Um, you know, so some of those early courses had quite a few straight lines, you know, whether it was straight fairway mowing lines or straight edges to the greens. Some of that was a throwback in the UK to when they'd fence off greens and um, to stop the sheep getting on. So you'd have these rectangular greens. So we kind of, you know, I guess it was a bit of a play on that. So when we started with Lonsdale, yeah, the, the guys took it to the extreme. And, you know, so if you look at it, you don't really notice it on the ground, but if you look at it in the drone shots, it's really obvious. Um, most of the fairway lines, or in fact, I think every fairway line is, is dead straight. Um, and, if, and if it dog legs, it'll, it'll, it'll go to like a 15 degree turn and then, and then, you know, to an edge and then turn off. Um, and a lot of the greens have, have, square edges. Um, there's one or two greens that are basically a, a, a perfect square. But you don't, yeah, you don't notice it on the ground because of all the ripples in the fairway tend to break up those straight lines. So yeah, it's kind of how it, I guess, how it originated. But um, the club have, uh, have loved it. I mean, I think it's, 
it's not the the straight lines that people are going there for. It's because it's a it's a good looking course. It's fun. It's interesting. Um, beautiful setting. Um, get amazing views. Great bit of land. Um, hopefully they love the design um, and it's in great condition. So yeah, since opening, we opened that I think December eighteen, and for the first four weeks there wasn't a day where there was less than three hundred golfers playing every day. So it's 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 sort of been. Yeah, it's, it's been incredibly popular, um, which is great. So, and it unique course, it kind of ticked all those boxes. It's not super long. It's like 5,600 metres. Um, yeah, so no, it's, it's been terrific. I think it's the perfect storm, Mike, in, in all honesty, because you kind of, you mentioned it there, it ticks all the boxes. It, it's an outstanding piece of land. Uh, it's beautiful scenery. It's an hour and a half out of Melbourne, only half hour out of Geelong. And I think for all those reasons, it's it's really good to see that you didn't just play it safe because there's probably a way that you know you you could have you could have made a pretty standard course there that would have been popular due to all those characteristics I just listed off. But I, I love the fact that there's a point of difference now at this course. Like we are we're spoilt in that whole region of Sandbelt, one of the best in the world. But you know, if you're building a new course here like you did, there's a real opportunity to try something new. And to your point, people vote with their feet, right? You've got, as you say, yeah. first four weeks with 300 people a day on it. It's a real, I think, testament to the fact that um, you saw a window that will go outside the norm and just try something different in a part of the world where it's going to be appreciated. Yeah, well, I mean, golf course design is one of those things where there isn't a lot of variety. You know, and I think it's because, you know, it's it's just how, how it's evolved. I mean, I've always thought, you know, if you had 100 architects and asked them all to build a course, you'd probably end up with 100 fairly similar courses. You know, you might there might be a few outliers, but whereas if you went to one architect and asked him to build 100 courses, you'd get all sorts of different courses in there because just human nature, you'd be trying to, you know, do things differently. There'd be, you know, there'd be tournament courses, there'd be kids' courses, there'd be women's courses, there'd be um, executive courses, nine hole, twelve hole. You know, there'd be all all sorts of different, you know, different um, different designs. But um, unfortunately, you know, when you go through the list of courses, they they typically are, you know, they're they're within a couple of hundred meters of each other. They sort of follow a, a bit of a formula. Um, yeah, and so this was a chance to do something different. And, and look, hopefully the templates are an attraction. I, I think they have been. Um, and they're a bit of a talking point. And, um, yeah, they, they really have. It's, it's unique to Australia, really. There's nothing like it in Australia. So. Mike, um, uh, you've got a pretty exciting project coming up at Huntingdale as well. Yeah, Tell us a little yeah. bit about that. That's a that's a really exciting one. That's uh, that that I've noticed and and doing a bit of uh, reading about it. You're talking about a short course as well that's going to be there. Tell us about what that master plan looks like and, and what is involved with a with the development of, of a master plan because you you're going to do one at Medina as well, which uh, we'll we'll certainly get stuck into in a moment. But um, sure. tell us about that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, I think everyone in Melbourne has such a soft spot for Huntingdale because it. I think it's a reminder of when golf was booming. You know, it was the 80s, it was Norman, Huntingdale, the Masters. You know, it was an amazing time. Um, you know, and, and you know, I, th I think losing the Masters had an effect on, on, on the club and, um, 
you know, I, I think there's an opportunity to sort of recapture some of that greatness. Um, it's, it's an interesting history, that course. And I guess sometimes with a master plan, you're trying to tap into that history. You know, so sometimes courses may have been designed by a famous architect and you, you may uncover, you know, we went through that period in the, from the 90s to now where restoration was all the rage and, um, you know, Greens committees and architects and superintendents were scouring the archives and finding these old plans or old black and white aerials or, um, and in some instances it was uncovering, you know, these amazing golf courses by architects who these days we've got a lot of reverence for. Um, that's not always the case, you know. Sometimes there's courses like, you know, my um, my home club at Kingston Heath. Whilst at Mackenzie did some work there, it's 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 kind of today it's the result of four or five different architects, you know, that have sort of um, pushed it along, and every generation has improved the course. So now it's it's the best it's ever been, and and trying to restore it to any era, it would probably be the worst for it. So sometimes as architects, our job is to kind of sift through all of that. So uh, we think it's important to look back through the history and see, have a look at the original aerials and have a look at the original plans and try and understand how it's evolved and got to the point where it's at. And sometimes that might mean, you know, maybe it was never that great a course and, but the land's good and you think, well, it, it really, you know, we should build a course that matches the quality of the land, which might lend itself to more of a redesign. Other times you might look at the plans and find half a dozen really interesting holes where the architect did something, um, he used the land in a particular way, and you think, well, this, this is an opportunity to restore some of these. Um, you know, at Huntingdale, I would say it's almost split in thirds. You know, with it's interesting because Charles Allison, who was a, a famous architect, he was a partner of Harry Colt's. He designed the course and he's got a great name because he kind of did in Japan what Mackenzie did here. He went and built all these famous courses in Japan, Hirono um, being one of them in Kiwana. Um, and he also actually finished off uh, Pine Valley when George Crump um, died. So he helped design the last five holes there. So he built like 23 or 24 courses in America. You know, he was a properly good architect and he designed Huntingdale, but he never came here. He did it all on a plan from England, sent it across. And then a local architect who was the, the course superintendent, Sam Berryman, built it. And he, you know, naturally deviated away from the plan in certain spots. So we've sort of been looking through these plans and there's, you know, half a dozen holes of, of um, Allison's that look unbelievable. They look so good. And we don't know why, but for whatever reason, you know, Berryman or the committee of the day decided to go in a different direction. So there's kind of, you know, there might be half a dozen holes where we think, you know, there might be a, a reason to perhaps try and create these holes that Alison originally designed. Then there might be another half a dozen holes that, um, that things have changed. You know, there, there's been water storages built, um, trees have been removed, you know, just the landscape has changed. You can't really put it back. Perhaps we think, you know, there's a handful of holes that can be better, so, so they might be more redesigned. And then there might be another half a dozen holes that are more sort of tweaks, you know, that the holes are already very good. Um, the old plans don't necessarily show anything better. We think they're, you know, they can't really be improved on other than just sort of, you know, little tweaky things, whether it's shifting a bunker or changing the alignment of the green a little bit. So it's, I would say it's, you know, we're yet to really get 
sink our teeth into it, but it's probably looking more like that. Um, but, you know, it's, got, it's a great property. Um, it's got all of the, the things we love about Sandbelt Golf. Um, you know, a lot of the sites, Sandy, some of it's not, but that's not uncommon around the Sandbelt. Um, plenty of pockets of metropolitan and um, uh, parts of peninsula, Commonwealth, Yarra Yarra, a, a heavy ground. You know, they're not all pure sand. Mm. Um, and, and it's got that sandbelt feel with the, the heathland in the tea carries. It's got some beautiful trees there. So it's, it's kind of got all the qualities to make it, you know, to, to improve on the design. Um, yeah, we're just looking forward to getting started, really. Speaking of getting started, um, a fantastic piece of news that you shared with the golfing world in December uh, was the appointment to, to undertake the master plan at Medina and on the third course there, number three, um, of course, uh, famously hosted the 2012 Ryder Cup, um, the, the the miracle at Madonna, which is some of the great viewing um, in amongst US Opens and, and PGA Championships as well. Tell us a little bit about the the process to to getting selected uh, to to undertake that master plan, and uh, and then I'm sure we've got an absolute bunch of questions to throw at you about what we can expect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, look, we're you know clearly delighted and thrilled um with the appointment it um you know when covid struck i thought it probably might be the end of our chances just by the the distance and having to do the interviews um from here and and via you know video calls and things like that um but we were first contacted when i was i was in the states so it was like february 2020 yeah so about a year ago um uh, initially sort of a short list and expression of interest and then we, we prepared a lot of information um, for them to consider. A little bit like what I was talking about with Huntingdale, we, we managed to stumble upon some old aerials, um, a couple of really interesting ones uh, from the 30s that showed, you know, quite a different golf course. A number of holes were very different and we, we overlaid that onto a modern aerial. So we sort of did quite a lot of line work and trying to work out where the holes were in the 30s. There was a, it seemed as though Tillinghast may have been involved, so which kind of piqued our interest. Um, some of the bunkering looked really Tillinghast-like, um, sort of similar to some of his work at San Francisco Golf Club and really very artistic um, style bunkers. So whereas the bunkers they have, um, now and even in the, the sort of by the 50s, they'd changed quite a lot. <clears throat> so I think we were able to demonstrate a, a really good knowledge of the site, of the, of the current design, how it had evolved. And, yeah, I guess we were trying to suggest that it was a beautiful property. It's got amazing vegetation, big-scale undulation, number of holes play around the lake. So it's a, it's a beautiful place to play golf. And I guess we were just trying to create a, a course where you had to think more on your way around. You know, we, I think it's fair to say we probably suggested perhaps more short grass, um, more opportunities to choose line and length and, you know, more of a premium placed on position more short grass around the greens, um, you know, all the things we love and see with, you know, a lot of the, the golden age designs, a lot of the best courses in the world. Um, yeah. So sort of COVID struck and we thought, mm. Oh, that, that may have, um, yeah, that may have ruined our chances, but we kept, um, yeah, we kept in contact with the club and we had a number, number of 
more sort of interviews. And then um, we, we suggested that perhaps they go and see Shady Oaks because just fortuitously, Shady Oaks was about to open just before the, um, the final decision was made. So it was, which, which was great. So they actually, you know, they were able to travel um, down to Texas and then, you know, they could actually walk and see um, sort of all the things we were talking about, you know, because all those things are inevitable, you know, they're, they're evident at Shady, you know, that essentially that's what we did at Shady Oaks. So, so even though it's, you know, different grasses, different climate, different trees, you know, it's, it's, there are certain hallmarks that are consistent within all the great courses of the world. Um, it doesn't matter what the setting is, you know, whether it's a Lynx course or on the cliffs in California or the Sandbelt in Melbourne. Um, and so, yeah, for them, they were able to see a lot of the things we were talking about in walking around Shady Oaks and, and also chatting with the club about, you know, what we like to work with and um, all those sorts of things. So, so yeah, and then um, we've, so we, we got awarded the project. We weren't allowed to tell anyone. Um, so there was a, a bit of a confidentiality agreement in place because at the same time, of course, they had the news that they were um, in the running for the 2026 uh, President's Cup. So it was kind of, you know, <clears throat> two Christmases, um, yes. you know, back to back. And then that, that they, they had to um, ask the members whether they were... Um, you know, happy to have the event, but they're they're a proud tournament venue. They've had a number of US Opens and PGAs and the Ryder Cup you mentioned. So, I think they thought that was probably a formality. But um, anyway, and then uh, yeah, and then they made the big announcement um, in December. So yeah, we were thrilled that uh, to, to be able to talk about it, to be honest, um, and tell everyone. So now we've just got the logistical issues of uh, getting there. So that's the. That's the challenge, but yeah, a lot of this week I've spent on phone calls uh, with a number of different people just to try and um, try and sort something out. So hopefully, fingers crossed, um, that can happen, and uh, we'll be across there and can can get the process underway. I suppose the there's been uh, you mentioned it's a wonderful tournament venue, and and it has has been for for such a long time. I mean. First designed in, in 1928. For those who, who aren't aware of, of course, three at Medina, it was designed in, in 1928 and, and renovated a number of times um, over the years in, in the 1970s, in the 90s. And then Reese Jones, um, you know, doing some alterations throughout the 2000s as well. I suppose the, the part that when people look at Medina, aside from the miracle at Medina, which is phenomenal in itself, it, last year it had the BMW Championship or, or two years ago, 20, 2019. Uh, had the BMW Championship and, uh, you know, Justin Domus, you know, nailed 61 on that course and and won at some stupid under par score. I mean, how does, uh, how do you look at the course? Um, I mean, the, the knock on it that many people say is that it, it can be too easy. How do you, how do you rate that comment um, for, as an architect and, and now the person that's uh, charged with, I guess, in many ways, making it tougher? Yeah, I mean, it's. I think that was probably, you know, one of the motivating factors behind looking at the course was, yeah, I mean, the, the scores they shot. Um, it is hard, though, and it gets back to our earlier comments. I mean, you would have seen it at the Masters this year, how soft it was playing. Mm. You know, if, if you do get a lot of rain leading into an event, there's a limit to what you can do, um, you know, because those guys are so good. If they're... Like you probably remember that shot of Cameron Smith's on 15 at Augusta. <laughs> like hit a hooking three wood that like plugged next to the pin. It's like there's not much you can do about that. You know, if you get a 
you know, really bad weather leading into an event. Um, and, you know, that's where firmness is, is such a key factor in trying to balance the whole member-friendly but at the same time challenging for a tournament professional. Mm. Um, but, yeah, and, and there's a few holes at Medina that kind of are the opposite. So, you know, they're dog legs with trees on the corner that the average member can't reach the corner, so finishes behind the trees. But guys like Rory and, and JT and, and Dustin Johnson just hit a driver over the trees and have a wet one. So this sort of, you know, so I think there are, they're the sorts of holes that we really want to kind of, um, you know, flip, flip that so that they're a bit easier. You're trying to make them, you know, the holy grail is to try and make holes that are easier for the average member but harder for the better player. Um, so, yeah, so that is certainly, I mean, that is one of our challenges really. Um, is to ensure that we've got a, a golf course at the end of the day that is fun and interesting for the member but still challenging for the better player. It's an interesting balance for someone in your position, Mike, because ultimately your responsibility is to to the client, um, but you, you are an architect for a reason. You have a great passion for taking and making the most of a piece of land um, and, and tailoring your design to that. There's also so many other factors. I mean, the course uh, itself has such a rich history, which you have to bear in mind. There's the expectation that maybe one day it will return itself to being a major venue. And, and you would think after your and ICM's work that it will do that. How do you balance all these competing interests uh, at the same time, just trying to do the most justice you can to the piece of land as it is? Um, that's a really good question. Um, and that is one of, you know, one of the challenges, um, you know, I mean, it's important to not forget that, you know, these courses are for 360 days of the year. Um, they're member golf courses, mm. you know, so you, you do have to ensure that, um, they're playable and interesting for, for the average member. And sometimes that is forgotten on tournament courses. You know, you do see some, you know, and for some, they wear it like a badge of honour. You know, they love the fact that people can't break 100. But at some point, you know, 200-metre 200, 200 carries just to, just to make the fairway, you know, and 20-yard wide fairways and thick rough off the fairways. And, you know, it starts becoming not that enjoyable after a while. And, and particularly if there's a way of doing it better so that it is a bit – so that it's still interesting and challenging for the – for the tour player, but but still fun and friendly for the for the average golfer, then you know I, I think that's probably a better balance. Um, and you know we're we're really lucky here in not to you know ram the, the Melbourne thing down down your throats again, but um, we are lucky because the Sandbelt courses do that very well. You know, the, the, one of the things I've always loved and talked about the Sandbelt is that they don't really change from a you know a, a midweek members comp to in terms of setup to an Australian Open. You know, it's, it's the exact same golf course. They might use a handful of extra back tees. Maybe the greens are running a little bit quicker, but that's it. Like there's no tricking up of they're not bringing in the fairways, they're not growing the rough, not doing any of that stuff. It's the same golf course. Whereas you tend not to see that at, at some of the big major venues overseas. They, they, you know, it's a six month or nine month process of prepping it ready for the tournament, you know, and, and that includes bringing the fairways in and growing the rough and doing, doing all these things to make it harder. So I, th I do think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from the sand belt. You know, it's a, 
such a beautiful, simplistic approach to maintenance. And it's sort of, and it nails the, you know, typically they nail the, the, the strategy, you know, it's, it's a very simple, so almost strategy 101, um, how a lot of those holes are, uh, are designed. So I don't know Sorry, whether that answers that question. No, I was just going to no, say. No, 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 it, it, it definitely does. I, I think for me, it also poses another one. And, and selfishly, I want you to talk maybe for a moment about what a project like this means for Ogilvy, Cocking and Mead and your team because and i hope you take this absolutely the way it's meant but it feels like a bit of a sliding doors moment because you've done some outstanding work here in australia both restoring some of our you know favorite courses to their former glories but also building some some lovely new ones you've had the the project in texas at shady oaks which really has been a bit of a, a foot in the door in that american market but taking on a project like medina when you'd imagine, given the history and the prestige around that club, it would have been a long list of applicants who threw their hat in the ring for the tender to come out and and get the notification that it's going to be OCM to take on that project and understand what possibilities it might bring afterwards. It must be a really exciting moment in the in the lifespan of 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 your vision for what OCM can and will be. Oh, absolutely, it is. I mean, you know, you can't become complacent though. I mean, you're only as good as you know your last job. Um, and, you know, we take every job, you know, just as seriously, um, it, you know, and we, and we put the same effort and passion into to, to any job. Um, certainly we enjoy working in America. Um, you know, we, I, I personally loved the experience at Shady Oaks and, you know, all the people at Shady I will be friends with for the rest of my career, you know, I'll continue to, to talk with them. We enjoy long-term relationships with our clients we're not really interested in doing a design and then not seeing them for five years or six years so we it's almost part of the the service we provide so so with shady our intention is to continually go back there um you know even if we didn't have another project in america we would go back there once a year and just continue to refine and tweak i mean golf courses are living breathing things and you know there are always opportunities just to keep chipping away and small little one percenters um then you know there might be a little design improvement that like building an extra tee or adding a bunker or something's not quite working and that we get a lot of enjoyment out of that going back and and seeing you know the members enjoying the course and just continually refining it improving it it makes it a lot easier if there are other jobs in america because it, it just makes it easy to go and see a number of different courses so that is our we would love to almost split our time. I mean, we, we certainly don't want to ever turn our back on our clients in Australia, but we would love nothing more than to have one or two projects in, in, in America as well. So, um, look, hopefully, you know, we do it. Well, I'm sure we'll do a great job at, at Medina, but hopefully that project does open up a couple of, of, of doors and there might be a few more opportunities. But, you know, we're not interested in getting you know, t- too big, we, we kind of two courses at any one time is, is enough um, that really stretches us. So our intention is still to stay pretty small and um, yeah, but it's um, yeah, it, look, it is an exciting project um, and it should be a, you know, once we can, once we can get over there and get started we yeah, it's going to be a really interesting next couple of years. One of the things uh, I think that, in doing some reading about what you're, you're planning on bringing to the course is short grass around the greens. Uh, and that is music to my ears, Mike, because um, there are so many courses on the PGA Tour and the one that sticks in my head is Muirfield Village. 
I think it's the 15th hole with water down the left and there's just rough between the fairway and the water. And essentially the water's not even in play because if you hit it, unless you, you massively miss hit it left um, and it goes in the water on the full, it, it's not going to roll down through the rough. It's going to get caught. So you may as well have a real good lash at it. I love the fact that you're going to put short grass around the greens because that that makes hitting the green so much more challenging because if you do miss then well then you're in in deep trouble so i, I love that that's um that's going to be part of a plan and i guess i uh, that's probably a little bit of that sand sand um uh, sorry that's your sandringham um influence coming through and and that sort of area in melbourne as well yeah it is i mean it's interesting though like i i find it fascinating that augusta you know, a lot of the things we love, they're there at Augusta. I mean, Augusta has, or well, certainly up until the 90s, it was all short grass. Mm. Um, short grass up to the edge of bunkers, you know, it's any rough. Um, and yet, and and every year it's sort of everyone's favourite tour stop. The, the tour players love it. People speak glowingly of Augusta. And yet, for whatever reason, golf kind of went in a slightly different direction, you know narrow fairways, rough around the bunkers, rough around the greens. And yet still every year, Augusta, it's the one tournament we want to watch, favourite course. It's like, you know, for some, it kind of didn't join the dots. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we love short grass. I mean, at Shady Oaks, we doubled the amount of short grass on that course. Um, and it was fun because early on, before we even started building we were working with brent super just mowing out some areas and adding a bit more short grass and the members loved it because it is it does flip that whole easier for members or it does create easier for members harder for tour players yeah um and that's that's a really simple way of doing it i mean not that short grass you know it's, it's not like it's a um you know it's not like it's that complex a, a problem for a tour player i mean these are really good players but it puts more clubs in their hands suddenly instead of it being just a, a hack out with a lob wedge which they all get very good at um suddenly it's like oh you know there could be six or seven different shots here that they could play um and your point is a is a really good one and it's it's evidence at um or it's evident at um Medina you know they've got a, a handful of green sites which are elevated well suddenly if you have short grass around it a missed shot's finishing 30 yards away from the green, mm. 35 yards away from the green, uh, not just finishing in that thick collar of rough five yards off the green. So, yeah, I mean, we, we love the look of it as well. I mean, it's a great aesthetic, but certainly from a playing point of view, it, it um, yeah, it makes all the difference. I mean, we could go on about Medina for uh, quite a, a long time, but um, a couple, uh, just a couple more before we before we do wrap on Madonna. What I suppose generally um have you sort of got in store for any specific holes i mean uh, i'm sure you haven't obviously been over there um and and on the grounds um for for quite some time or i'm, I'm not sure if you if you've actually been able to get over there at all but are there any specific holes or any specific sort of changes that you're recommending in this master plan that you, you might be able to share with us it's probably too early i'm afraid yeah, yeah. yeah. it's um you know we're we're thinking through i mean we haven't really shared with the club anything at this stage other than broad philosophical things, a little bit like what we were talking about before, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, no, we've got a few different ideas in mind, but it's kind of a, it's the next step is getting there and um, really spending some time on site, more, more time on site 
spending time with the the whole team, superintendent, g- getting a better feel for all the all the issues, and then you know we'll start to piece together. Um, start to piece together the plan. I mean, we've got some interesting historical things that are um, good to look at and, you know, there might be some things in that that, we, that we're keen to reintroduce, but, yeah, it's, um, it's probably just too early, I'm afraid. No, I, I, thought, that might <laughs> be, I, I thought that might be the case. Um, all right, let's wrap on Medina on this. Uh, what, what does it look, what does the, the, the plan and the rollout look like um, at the moment? Of course, very difficult to, to travel internationally at the moment, uh, restrictions and lockdowns and all the rest of that happening still around the world. Um, it must be very difficult to try and redesign a golf course from the, from the other side of the world, just going off, off photographs and, and whatnot. So what does that sort of next few months look like for you, for you guys trying to get, get over to the States? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Um, <laughs> we, uh, and that's what we're sort of working on at the moment. So I, I think it's fair to – well, yeah, it just seems to change day by day. I mean, that's one of the frustrating things with COVID is that um, – and, you know, we're, uh, important not to lose context because, you know, people have, have died and, you know, it's a shocking – disease yep. I mean, so designing golf courses is very much a first world problem um but it's just so hard to know you know because it because it does change i mean it's hard to gauge when the rollout is in terms of vaccinations it's hard to gauge when you know international travel will start opening up or whether there's other ways we can get there um so it's, they're all the things that we're sort of yeah we've spent the last couple of weeks sort of speaking with a few different people about so um, I, yeah, I, I don't have any answers at this stage. Okay. But, <laughs> sorry, it's two in a row. But, <laughs> no, that's, that's, ask, me, ask me an easier question. That, well, <laughs> hey, these are all questions that we'll have you back on for part three and we'll, <laughs> we'll get stuck into it. We'll get a whole-by-whole whole, uh, rundown of Medina of where we're at. <laughs> We might uh, we might have three in a row here, Mike, because I'm going to ask you a fairly philosophical question. I want to I want to bring it back to... Australia and 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 the growth of the game here and this might be one that you don't have the answer to it might be a very straightforward answer but I want to talk about how we how we identify maybe parcels of land um, or potential courses that no one's really I suppose considered or looking at and I know that you know growing courses in these areas is so contingent on a funding and money and, and b people with that money willing to take a chance but you know, scouring through the OCM website um, ahead of a chat tonight, I, I look at what seems to be a fantastic and exciting project coming up for you guys at, at a place, a little town called Muscle Row Bay in Tasmania. And this piqued my interest um, in, in many different ways, but first and foremost, because you think Tassie Golf and you generally think um, both the courses at Barnburgle and also, um, you know, the, the, the wonder that is King Island uh, and also Cape, Cape Wickham up there. But there would be so many parts of the Tassie coastline that are completely untapped, which speak to, I think, a whole different conversation around huge parts of Australia that would be untapped. And somewhere like what you're doing in Muscle Row Bay kind of reminds me a little bit about, you know, the story around Band and Dunes, which was absolutely nothing, you know, 15, 20 years ago before um, someone with a lot of money and Mike Kaiser saw something that maybe others didn't see. And, and employed a few people to explore some options. We seem to have, I think, an absolute depth of riches we aren't even aware of here in Australia. And I wonder, from someone who does this for a living in terms of shaping courses and, and building them, bringing them to life, what's what stands between us and having some of the best courses in the world that we don't yet know about? 
Um, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, there are lots of people that are out there scouring for the next great, you know, world top 100 course. Um, I remember meeting a guy, an American guy who was play, who came out to Australia to play different, you know, he wanted to play all the, the best courses because he was looking for land for a world top 100 course. And his prerequisite was that it has to be on the ocean. Um, didn't matter how good the land was, if it wasn't on the ocean, he wasn't interested. Um, then you get other people who, you know, one of the, it's, it's probably something that you may not have considered, but one of the characteristics of most of the destination golf courses being built, not all, because Streamsong is probably the outlier, but most of them are in, are in climates where fescue grass grows. So it's sort of cooler climate. And fescue is kind of the, the ideal grass. It's probably the best grass to play golf from, but it's sort of a, in sandy sites, it's that firm, bouncy turf. Um, you know, you can grass all the fairways and the greens basically with fescue. You can play, you know, running shots. It's a fantastic grass to play from. So we had a client in um, China, actually, of all places, and one of his prerequisites was it has to be fescue. You know, this course has to be, <laughs> has to be fescue. For it to be a Lynx course, it has to be fescue. We, and he's probably right because you, you don't sort of get the same playing characteristics from cooch grass. Um, some people scour Google Earth. The guy that, yeah, the guy <laughs> that found Sand Valley in Wisconsin was a sort of a promising architect. And he used to find, I think it might have been pre-Google Earth, I want, I want to say. Maybe it was like he was looking at actual plans, um, aerial photos. And he would find interesting properties. And then he and his wife would go bushwalking. He, he loved bushwalking. So he would go and find, they'd, they'd find this property and then they'd go off on the weekend and uh, drive to this place and walk it and find out whether it was any good. So he actually found the land at San Valley. <laughs> Um, and then I think then got the Kaisers involved and they, to their credit, sort of got him involved as well. So he was sort of part of the, the project there. So you can kind of, you can do it in all sorts of ways. I mean, Andrew Purchase, who used to own Turnpoint, um, which is a big sort of construction and maintenance company, they built um, the course at King Island. They built Cape Wickham and he found that, I believe he found that property or maybe, maybe Graham Grant found that property. But anyway, and they sort of similar method, you know, where, where can we find great golf courses? So they've, whatever reason, hit upon King Island, looking at Google down there. That was the next step. And then, so it's, that's how people are finding it. You know, they're kind of scouring plans and looking at, you know, what's close to, you know, a town centre or, you know, what's within, you know, X of a capital city. Um, but, you know, I think one, one of the lessons of remote golf has been that if the land's good enough, people will go to it. It almost doesn't matter how, um, how remote it is. Um, I mean, I asked, and I asked Mike Kaiser Jr., who's, um, he was heavily involved at Sand Valley. I said, hypothetically, would you take a great site, an, a great inland site or an average site on the water? And he said, I'd take the great inland site every day. So for him, water's nice. And they've built a lot of courses on the water like Ben and Dunes. But he, he would prefer the great site over that. I might have said, maybe I might have said like a site on the water that was clay 
versus an inland sandy <laughs> type. I can't remember what I said, but, but anyway, the case in point. Whereas the other guy, the guy that I mentioned at the start, he would have taken the one on the water. So, Fascinating so, the, the yeah, way so that all, I guess people look at it though, isn't it? Yeah, and look, there's a few, you know, there's probably three or four projects that, you know, we're hearing about that, um, you know, on fantastic sites in remote locations that people are looking at um, around Australia. So they're out there and, and people have found them through all sorts of means. Um, you know, you may not get 40 or 50,000 rounds a year, but if the site's good enough, you'll get, you know, you'll get enough people for it to be a viable, you know, a viable thing. Um, you know, Barnboogle, I guess, was unique in that it's only an hour from Launceston, so it wasn't too great a stretch. But I remember going down, I was sort of lucky enough to go down there, you know, early days before it was built. And um, I remember thinking, God, there is no, like who on earth is going to come down here? <laughs> like no one, you know, as good as the land was, it was like no one goes to Port Ferry. And that's a four-hour drive from Melbourne. Who's going to go to drive to Tullamarine, get on a plane, go to Launceston, drive an hour and a half out here? But, you know, I was completely wrong, of course. But, um, yeah, I mean, it's and, – and you look at all these – I mean, some of these courses – um, you know, like the courses in Nova Scotia. Um, I mean, they're only open six months a year, maybe five months a year. So it's not even, you know, I mean, we, we don't sort of, we're not aware of that in Australia, but some of these courses like Sand Valley, um, you know, it, their golfing season's five months long and they're still popular enough for it to be, a, you know, for it to be a going thing. So... Last one, Mike. Sorry. Before we before we wrap it up, no, because it it, it it tacks onto the bag of this. And and after the last time that we had you on, I, I sent you a message on Instagram about this wonderful piece of property that uh, I go up and play called Lancelin up here in the dunes in in WA. And and I still firmly believe that with the right level of investment, and it would need to be significant um, because it does need a fair bit of work. And uh, to change, take it from a nine hole to an 18 hole, I think it could be one of um, the country's great courses. So there's definitely properties out there. Um, it's just a matter of, of, I guess, one, having the right or one, people finding them, but also two, having the, the level of right investment. So um, ho hopefully uh, you're able to get over to Perth and we can, uh, and we'll go out to Lancelin and, and um, we'll come up with a way to, to get some money and, <laughs> and we'll put it into, into Lancelin because I truly believe there's some, um, some genuine potential up there in the dunes. So. I've seen pictures of Lancelin. It looks yeah. incredible. Yeah, it's all cut through the dunes there. Yep. It's fascinating. Yeah, yeah it's yeah, a really, yeah. really cool, really yeah, cool no, site. Yeah, absolutely. Mike, uh, I suppose that wraps it for, for your second venture into the 9XT podcast. It's been a lot of fun having a chat to you. There's so much um, that we can still go on about. I mean, we could do a whole episode on Madonna itself, but um, wish you the very best for, for everything that's coming your way. There's some very, very exciting projects and uh, we look forward to having you on, on uh, the 9XT podcast again in the future to, to chat through um, all these exciting things on the radar. So thanks very much for jumping on. No worries. Thanks, Kieran. Thanks, Nathan.